0: Does the New World Order have a secret agenda against small business? Today, first-time guest and host of Codings Talk, Jim Kunkel and I give contacts to my special interview with Tom Tucker of autocare.org, way back in November while I was at SEMA in Las Vegas. I've been hanging on to this recording for months, waiting for the perfect time to shed some light and bring awareness to a movement in your state and local legislatures that could bring sweeping changes to the aftermarket auto parts industry, but also repair businesses that you use every day. How will this affect coatings and restoration? Is the future as bleak as we imagine, or is this the dawn of a new industrial age? There is more than just freedom at stake here, and now's not the time to stand idle. Let's unravel what the technocrats of the world really want from us. Get ready to level up your powder coder game. (laughs) Welcome to the Powder Coater Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Scott. Uh, We are happy to uh, have as a guest for the first time, Jim Kunkel. Uh, He's the host of Coatings Talk, another powder coating or coatings channel on YouTube. And he talks about all kinds of technical stuff that will blow your mind. So, Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Kim, thank you. Uh, It's only right since you were on my show that I should be on your show.
0: Well, thanks for returning the favor. And I am excited about today's topic. I do want to get into it right away. But uh, first, I want to kind of just preface just a little bit of your background. You've been in business or you've been in the coatings industry for 15 years, over 15 years, and you started in powder coatings. What's all about that?
1: Yeah, so I'm in, uh, obviously, you can tell by my background, I have a <laughs> beautiful, uh, you know, backyard uh, here with the Pittsburgh behind me. Um, I'm based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my whole life, and uh, got involved working for a steel service center in the uh, around 2007 uh, timeframe. And we had, uh, as a steel service center, we had a fabrication unit we bought when the downturn in 2008 happened, and they rented in our space. So giant steel service center so it got me into the world of fabrication and powder coating and for a number of years I was involved with powder coating and my primary powder coater that I you know product I'd buy with was Axo Nobel and ironically I work now for Axo Nobel but on the liquid coating side and so I've been involved uh, within uh, you know different parts of the industry but you know, right now I'm on the engineering side. I work with a lot of the major capital projects in Canada and in here in the States. And I have a team uh, that also does the same. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a big world out there when you talk about protective coatings. It doesn't matter if it's powder or liquid. Um, we all have a, a mission and uh, we all enjoy what we do.
0: Now, where can we so you're on YouTube, but what's the name of your channel?
1: So the, the channel, if you were to go to YouTube.com and you put a backslash, and you do an at Coding's Talk, it will take you to my channel. If you have a Google account or you have a Gmail, you can sign in to YouTube because you have to be assigned into YouTube, and you could subscribe and set your notifications to all, but roughly have about 1,300 subscribers so far, and I also take that content and promote it also on LinkedIn and other platforms as well.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's get into today's subject. Um, We're talking about fighting for the right to repair. Um, There's a lot at stake here. Uh, It's, I first got introduced to the subject when I went to SEMA or just before I went to SEMA, um, because, you know, as a media person, you get sent a lot of, um, you know, interesting emails to interview people or, you know, come see me or I'm going to be in this booth or that booth or whatever. And so I was like, oh, what's this? Like, uh, SEMA has the autocare.org guy. And I'm like, well, what's all this about? Um, I had gotten a taste of it when I interviewed, uh, uh, Tom Gattuso. I'll show you his, uh, podcast, uh, here on my screen. Hold on a minute. See, hold on. Yeah, here it goes. Uh, This was episode 51 I did back in September uh, talking about SEMA. But towards the end of this episode, uh, we talked about some of the legislation stuff happening and everything. So kind of go get over there, start over there, and then you can kind of head back to where we're at (laughs) and how we've come to this, right? Uh, Some of the other, Um, things that I've learned is the SEMA Repair Act also is hitting the, you know, uh, legislature again. Uh, The bill got rejected. And a lot of it is just around defining what modification is. So we'll put a link in the description for that uh, article in the in our podcast today, as well as a link to Jim's show and some of the other articles that we're going to talk about today. So with that, let's get started. Um, what we're going to do is sort of a different format uh, than we've ever done on the show before, and that is back at SEMA months ago, I interviewed uh, Tom Tucker, who's in charge of the AutoCare.org uh group that is sort of handling or t- you know it's it's sort of a coalition of all the aftermarket people so we're talking about uh, suppliers uh, distributors tool manufacturers parts manufacturers the whole National trade association under auto care there's over 3,000, uh, members. Some of them are international. So uh, this is a huge trade organization that's trying to kind of gather everyone up to kind of uh, mar- march towards some of this, you know, I don't want to say negative re- legislation, but legislation that is definitely affecting the marketplace, including customers, job shops, and and other repair shops and stuff. So uh, with that, our format today is going to be kind of taking the video that I took of Tom talking about the various subjects and then uh, Jim and I'll come in and kind of comment and give our little two cents after. Uh, I think what Tom has to say is extremely important and he the way he presents it uh, is easy to understand and then easy to comment on, too. So I'm really excited to kind of just do a different kind of show format anyway. So with that, let's get started.
1: You know, um, what, Kim, uh, Kim, before we would start to stream this, um, yeah. also, too, that this right to repair impacts technology, um, capital equipment, so many different industries.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so. Uh, I think what we're gonna do is focus on the automotive stuff with Tom and then Mm -hmm. from there, I know after we're done with this video, it's gonna, you know, we're just gonna start talking about all kinds of other industries that are being affected today, Uh, because that's where your kind of expertise kind of comes in too, as well as, you know, you've been talking, you know, you've been aware of the Apple fix it guy and uh, some of the farmer situations out in middle America too. So let's start with um, the first, Part of the interview with Tom, um, where he's just identifying the problems. There's going to be four problems identified, uh, but we're going to talk after about the three, the top three. This first segment is a little on the long side because he's just explaining everything. So just bear with us. Um, and let, with that, let's get started with what he has to say.
2: Some of the big issues that we are tackling uh, at the state level, uh, you know, one of our biggest issues is right to repair. Um, right right to repair uh, consumers, giving consumers the right to repair their personal property, whether it's an automobile, heavy duty truck. Um, Right to repair is a signature issue. Um, uh, We've signed a national agreement 10 years ago with the automakers that they're required to provide diagnostic uh, tools and information software um, to any independent repair shop for a fee. But what was excluded from that agreement was wireless transmitted data. As we talk about new modern vehicles, um, I like to call them computers on wheels. Um, there are um, millions millions of lines of code in modern vehicles. Um, there's actually more lines of code in a, um, uh, a modern vehicle than in the F-22 Raptor, which is one of the US Air Force's top fighter jets. Um, saying that, you know, the vehicle manufacturer and the dealers, um, get a competitive advantage over independent repair shops by being able to send diagnostic and trouble codes early to the consumer, letting them know, um, you're, there's a trouble code, you need an oil change, you need a filter, tire rotation or change, um, and they can order the part. I call them in they get to the they schedule an appointment and get get their vehicle service what's problematic about that you know that's new technology but what's problematic is independent repair shops don't have that same access and it creates a uneven uh playing field and gives the franchise dealerships a competitive advantage in the repair market we feel that's anti-consumer it's anti-competitive and it provides a monopoly in the repair industry which you know we don't we don't we think that that's just not appropriate furthermore uh, some other issues include the aftermarket or um, oem repair procedures to the consumer to the ordinary consumer if you ask the question should a repair have to follow the OEM repair procedure, suggested repair procedure when when repairing a vehicle. Every most consumers would say absolutely. And for the most part, we agree, particularly when it comes to safety and repairability. But if if you mandate that a repair has to follow the repair procedure, the OEM can change their repair procedure to say you have to use OEM parts. And that's where we draw the line, because that takes away consumer choice and increased cost. And that's not um, in the best interest of consumers. Consumers want to be able to choose what type of parts they're being put in their cars and, and the cost they're, that they're going to pay. And so because of that, um, we oppose OEM repair uh, procedure legislation across the country. There's also aftermarket parts bans or restrictions in multiple states where um, in an insurance funded repair, um, the they're mandating that you have to use an OEM part or a part that is like-kind and quality of the OEM part. You know, that's a little bit too subjective. How do you measure like-kind and quality? Um, particularly when you have m- many aftermarket companies who are tier one suppliers to the OEMs, they make the same products, they just make them for the aftermarket. And, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. You can't quantify that. Um, other Other legislation that we follow, um, the elimination of the safety inspection programs, you know, the deferred maintenance on vehicles across the country is astronomical, and there are a lot of vehicles on the road that are just unsafe because brakes haven't been uh, changed, the tires don't have the proper air, wipers or, or or rear lights or headlights aren't functioning properly. These are safety hazards, and oftentimes, and I'm I'm guilty of this problem. just as. Just as almost every consumer, you know, we plan to get the, we plan to get the part or the car fixed when we have time. Oftentimes, when you have time is a month or two later, and it doesn't get fixed in a timely fashion, and so your car becomes a safety hazard. A safety inspection program ensures that every year or every other other year, a technician is looking at the safety features and function of your vehicles to ensure they meet a minimum safety standard for every vehicle across the country or on on the roads where there's a safety inspection program so the elimination of those programs we find problematic Um, we actually believe that with modern vehicles that um, that are computers on wheels that every vehicle um, should be you know inspected annually or biannually to ensure that the safety systems are operating correctly that a a trained and qualified technician is is putting their eyes on the car to make sure it's functioning properly we still haven't even talked about ADAS against driver assist systems which aren't you know there there's no qualification to um, inspect those systems anytime only when there's a accident or collision and they have to be recalibrated Um, but you know, ADAS systems are one of those critical functions on a vehicle that should be inspected annually to ensure that they're functioning properly.
0: So that is pretty much what it, you know, where we're at, Uh, sorry for the long intro on the problems, but uh, there's some big ones out there that he's trying to cover. So let's go through them. Um, uh, Number one is you know, this premise for the right to repair, which is basically that the industry is creating certain people, certain stakeholders, like dealers, dealerships are creating an unfair market advantage, uh, over small shops or, uh, unsophisticated in terms of equipment, uh, shops, because they can't, they can't, um, they don't have access to these clients, uh, these customers mm-hmm. in the cars because the, the the lights come on in the car, but how do you know where to go after that, right? So yeah. uh, this, so do you have any? What what's your? I mean, we've all experienced that. So just as a consumer, I think we kind of, especially if you have a newer car, you kind of all experience that uh, today, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, uh, they're kind of fixing the market when it comes to any type of service and repair. So they're going to have a relationship with a lot of the chain, um, you know, uh, chain um, authorized, let's say, um, providers, and they're going to prefer them. They probably, if you go to some of the manufacturers' websites, they're saying, go to these authorized people, but they're precluding others that could do the same work as well.
0: Right. I think it's changing of a mentality Mm -hmm. in the consumer uh, with these, you know, but the other half of it is. That these systems are more complicated. They they are computer generated. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of code. Uh, when I was walking around SEMA, that's exactly what I came to. Uh, upstairs from where I was uh, was the collision repair section on the second level of this the main center of the SEMA. Uh, exhibitors. There was two halls. Uh, I was in one hall. Um, and on the second floor was just all those people. And, you know, I'm, it's a, it's, it's pretty busy up there, you know, like there's a lot of people looking at, you know, in the powder coating schema was up there, uh, Wagner, um, Nordson, uh, global finishing systems. There were a lot of powder coating, uh, related companies up there. And in addition to like, small kind of like robots that fixed cars and, and and body auto body. And I mean, it's just everything. Um, And then, uh, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is awesome for the economy because people have to get loans to buy this equipment. They get to upgrade their shops, uh, stuff like that. Then there's this other side of it that they need the, they need to go to the school or get this certification Mm -hmm. or, you know, so it's, it's, it's much easier, probably easier to buy the equipment than maybe get the, get the knowledge to, to run it to as well. So complicated uh, to, to repair and maintain.
1: Yeah. I I think if the game isn't rigged, if you are a a provider and you're not caught up with modern times, you're going to fall to the, you're going to fall to the back, right? You're going to lose. Ultimately, you'll probably go out of business. So if you have an open, fair opportunity, people will innovate, they'll come up with those new solutions and new ideas, and also they'll grow as companies, they'll hire people, and it increases the the pool of providers that can do this work. But when you have something that's kind of, you know, the game is rigged, it it does not kind of spark anything. The other thing when it comes to it, if I'm a consumer and I have a limited amount of authorized people I can go to, that means I'm going to be paying a premium price because they know that competition's fixed and they can pretty much collectively without without collusion they can all collectively set prices as high as maximum as high as possible
0: well, that's something that's, yeah. I mean, that's that's dead on right there, Jim, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, anytime something is scarce, it just gives an opportunity for something. I mean, sometimes, you know, we get it. We're far away. Things cost more too. When you are in more rural area, you know, that's something that kind of happens here. Locally, we have to pay for shipping much higher. So our costs are overhead are a little higher too. But at the same time, it it allows for opportunity to actually charge a premium you know you always remember the the movies where somebody's like their car in the movies that dies and then the, they're stuck because and then they get taken advantage of by the guy that looks like the dumb country bumpkin <laughs> and yeah. then they just you know i don't know i'm thinking of it was, probably like some some movie with like steve <laughs> uh oh what's that uh, uh, you know the comedian guy uh Oh, never mind. Yeah. You know, no, it's always I, some comedic I, thing, right? Yeah. When they get stuck in the car and they can't get the, the you know.
1: I know what you're what you're saying. <laughs> the the thing I always um I'm a strong advocate of and I talk all the time because you know, working with a on the contractor side when it comes to codings work, as when I'm working with owners, you know, my my key golden rule the time is you want to accept the lowest qualified bid. So it's okay to go after a low price as long as they are qualified. And again, you're not going to be taken advantage of, or you're going to double pay, or you're going to have a longer term problem. And the one thing I want to point out too, when it comes to right to repair. So when you look at all the states, you have, you have to deal with every state because every state has laws and regulations on right to repair, but it's not specific. It's not specific to the auto industry, agricultural industry technology industry it's just general it's just like basically right to repair and they have these general regulations and laws that are in place and then the other thing is with all these all the states having their own regulations and laws you're fighting against a big giant uh you know consulting firm let's say that that are going out there and they're trying to stop that because if mm-hmm. they can stop it for general right to repair it, that their client list is big. It doesn't matter what sector you're in. They're going to have good clients because they're not just targeting car auto repair and things like that.
0: Right. Right. Um, and there's, you know, obviously big industry, multinational companies, they have mm-hmm. these uh, budgets that can afford that, you know, so how does the little guy survive? Um, so, uh He did touch on this, you know, what I call specification, right? So that's the second problem is that with these high tech cars, these coded, you know, these uh, cars that have codes and error codes and uh, need specialty equipment to repair it, um, the specification on getting aftermarket parts is limited uh or at least that's what they're trying to go after right is that you can only use oem you can't yeah you can't use the cheaper product even though you know so he was trying to, to say well how do you define that because all these aftermarket people that are in our national trade organization all have to have top tier you know uh qualifications just to even you know like yeah you know to keep it you know uh good quality, right? You know, they're trying to compete with that market so that they have bring a top notch product to market as well, right?
1: Yeah. So when you think about it, the requirement is that it has to be OEM approved. And then, oh, by the way, the technician has to be trained through our training program. But in order for you to be in the training program, you have to have, you have to be a certain approved provider for it. So that also rigs the system because now if you had availability to the OEM part, you're not going to have a technician because they're going to block you because they're saying well, you're not authorized. You can't do this. Right. So if you do that, you're going to void everything. And we're also not going to we're not going to back up any of that work, even though it's an OEM part.
0: Yeah. Now this next one is, you know, obviously he's talking about safety inspections. Now in Hawaii here, we've we've had safety inspections here for years. I know that they're trying to, uh, you know, we're a very democratic state, so they're actually trying to eliminate safety inspections here, I think. So we're kind of going in that direction where they're going to, by eliminating the the safety inspection, if you do have one in your state, uh, they're opening it up for this I don't know. I don't want to say bad stuff, but they're opening it up for these dealerships to kind of come in and set the new laws, the new rules about OEM and specifying and uh, and you know only dealers and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I mean it's it's hard enough here in Hawaii because we have like a lot of lifted trucks, uh, a lot of um, you know mods, and they just locally not on our island, but on Oahu, you actually have to, it's very difficult to get a a, a safety inspection uh, for your mod, modded lifted trucks. So there's, they're actually kind of tamping down uh, locally over on Oahu, these big lifted trucks. People are still doing it and they're, you know, obviously could be breaking the law if they do, but uh, they just have to go through a longer process to get the safety inspection. It's just really humbug. I know that they're, they're trying to uh, not eliminate the safety inspection for these people, but they're actually trying to modify it. So it's a little easier to get, especially during COVID, everything was shut down. So like if you wanted to work on your car and get a new specialty uh, modded, you know, safety inspection for your modded truck, you, you, you were like nowhere's fill, Right. So um, anyway, so I think there's a lot of legislation happening in States that are actually now on a, on a, sort of proactive side is initiating these safety inspections, whereas the other side's trying to unroll them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I can see, you know, I'm Pennsylvania, so we have safety and admissions, but in Ohio, there is no safety. Um, A lot of people in Western Pennsylvania where I'm at, they have their cars registered in Ohio. So they don't have to get safety inspection. Now I'm kind of mixed on that because I do see value in safety inspection. But I see that also, too, by waiving it or eliminating it. First, they can win a PR battle with the citizens because they're like, listen, you're not going to have to get inspected anymore once a year. You're not going to have to have to do that. But it also is part of that rigging the system, because now where you had these authorized, you know, the dealerships can't do state inspections for all the volumes of cars that are out there. That's why they need to have inspection stations that will be big and small. Other companies, even some of the retail chains doing it as well. When it comes down to it, if they eliminate that, you don't have to worry about that. And oh, by the way, uh, if you need to have a repair done, you got to go to the dealership who is authorized and has to use OEM parts.
0: Right. Right. So
1: it might sound good, but in the long run, it's not a good situation financially.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, So yeah, it's kind of it's this tug and pull going on now, um, and uh, we, t- you know, I just. I don't know if you have any comment on this last part, which is about the ADAT. Uh, You know, uh, it's true what he's saying, you know, like there's no way to get that data until something happens in a car to say what happened, like a little black box kind of thing going on, you know. (laughs) But, uh, you know, do you have any comment on that? Um, I I think I'm just trying to look at my notes here.
1: So some some of the pushback about, so airplanes have, Data recorders and it records everything. So you know exactly how the engines were operating, how the hydraulics, everything was functioning. By putting in a data collection in a vehicle, if it's collecting certain data, that can also work against the manufacturer. And if we remember Volkswagen, the big scandal a number of years ago was regarding their miles per gallon, their efficiency on fuel, where they actually programmed into the cars to show higher mileage per (laughs) gallon. And so what happens when you put these recorders in there, if there is a major defect, and I remember, you know, I'm 50, going to be 57. And I remember you had the Pintos and you had certain vehicles, the trucks that would get hit from behind and the gas tank was not designed Mm -hmm. properly and would burst in the flame.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: So the only time we have these, these, major defects happen is when there's catastrophic events now all of a sudden if we have these recorders you're going to see more of that now again i think that's good but also what'll happen is the reason why i think a lot of the car manufacturers will fight against this is because now all of a sudden all these defects will become apparent earlier and become more costly costlier because it was more cost effective for them to do quality control by shipping the vehicle out of the line. And letting you, the consumer, be the quality control because six months and you're all of a sudden now you're having a problem with your transmission system or your ignition system. When they knew it was flawed going into it, but they just didn't want to pull the production and fix it because it would cost them too much money.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you've watched um, Fight Club, right? I mean, that's (laughs) that. Please watch Fight Club if you haven't watched Fight Club. That's like my favorite movie of all time.
1: Don't talk about Fight Club, okay? Don't talk.
0: <laughs> right? But that's what led the character to kind of go over the yeah. edge because he had to deal with all this insurance, you know, and just they never fixed anything and people just kept dying and whatever. I mean, it's so true. That's how we work it in America, right? <laughs> I think it's different than Europe, though. Europe like to overregulate. Well, we can't have them go anywhere, you know, you know they're kind of more proactive, where we're kind of like, yeah, maybe when the fiftieth guy, uh, die, you know fifty, you know fifty thousandth person dies, we'll fix the tires on this car, or whatever. Yeah,
1: right? I mean Kim, I, I have a quick story. <laughs> this happened to me. This with when it comes to a major problem, I had a, a nineteen eighty two uh, Cutlass Supreme Oldsmobile, and at that time it was when we were going away from you know, having a carburetor and you had electronic fuel systems and things like that. And it was kind of at that time, not that it was new, they existed, but for, you know, some of those models in the early eighties, they were starting to pop up. And um, this vehicle would literally, if I was coming down a hill, it would just stall out on me. And, you know, back then those vehicles were big and they were heavy. And if you lost all the power, you lost everything. It was like, you know, trying to, you know, uh, try to drive like a concrete truck. That's what it felt like trying to stop the thing. And what ended up happening was, you know, we kept my, I remember grandfather was helping me out. We would keep fighting with the dealership and they would, they'd go in and they'd do some work on it and say, okay, it's good. And then it would do the same thing over and over again. We finally got a representative from, uh, I think it was General Motors that owned them, if I remember with Oldsmobile. But the guy was actually saying, okay, I'm going to take your car. And he went up a hill, came down, it, it stalled on him and he immediately said we're replacing your car. Oh wow. Now, it took that guy going through the same situation and we've been we were fighting for ye- a couple years, literally probably about a year and a half fighting with the dealership and with General Motors. Yeah, it was General Motors to get this vehicle either fixed or get me a new model cuz it was literally broken from day one. But they knew they had a problem. It was just let's get it off the production and we'll just deal with it as we need to deal with them.
0: You know, I have a story too. It's not, it's automotive, but it's, it's related. And, um, I'm not kidding you, like two blocks from where our shop is today. Uh, this is before I had kids and thankfully no kids were in the car, but my mom and I were, I don't know, we were going somewhere, uh, into town and we got rear ended right here. Uh, but there was no light. It was just like, uh, you just had to turn when there was availability turned down on the street that we're on today. And sure enough, I got rear-ended because my, I had a red Volvo Jetta, a uh, red Jetta, a uh, VW Jetta. And uh, we got rear-ended because the guy couldn't see the red lights versus the red car, I guess was his, what he said on the insurance claim. He had a, load of like tourists in this van there was like 18 passenger van and we got rear-ended do you know I'm not kidding you I think I was the last stat that they needed in the county of Maui to get the light installed in that intersection I mean it happened within weeks of me being in pain and you know you know, trying to get my back to get back better, you know, my neck was all out of whack and everything and stuff. Um, You know, it's always one, you're always one statistic away from change, I guess, so to speak. So, um, but yeah, I think those are really uh, relatable problems that we are here in. um, And I want to preface this by saying the reason why we're talking about this is because Powder coatings do have, a, are related. Um, we do uh, a lot of rim restoration. A lot of us do rim repair. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Ross doesn't want to get into balancing tires and, uh, you know, drive-in service like a lot of these guys do. He just doesn't want that risk. Plus, we're so busy with other types of projects. It's just not for us right now, you know? Um
1: but think about it: if you did decide to branch that way, and you you would create a unit a unit that way, you probably right. would hire people to run it, operate it. And it would be just an added service for you. Right now, in a way, you're limited. You really can't even explore that as an opportunity potentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I just don't, you know. Uh, so it, it is something to kind of consider, especially if you are ex- thinking about expanding or you're growing really fast. Um, there's guys that that's all they do is just rim repair and you know, all of that stuff uh, in major, you know, cities around the United States. So, uh, you know, it, it this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this to CERT, but also the right to repair just in general for job shops, uh, all job shops. So uh, if you haven't gotten it by now, that's why we're here talking about this subject. And I'm I'm, I'm so happy you are here, Jim, because you're the perfect person to kind of launch this from. I I wanted to tackle this subject, but it's, it's a big subject to talk about alone or without somebody, you know, that has some background and, and gets what we're talking about today. So I was happy that you were just as passionate about it as I am.
1: Yeah. And Um, and Kim, you know, a lot of people don't understand it and that, that's, that's what the lobbyists have done. They've clouded even the politicians and the general public because, you know, everyone thinks that if I need to get my iPhone repaired or my, you know, my MacBook repaired or, you know, again, it goes to your vehicle. It could go even to some of the equipment you might have that you use in production um, or even agricultural equipment. It, it really encompasses everything. But it's, it's a worthy battle for everybody to fight because it gives you a lot of flexibility, but also financially it helps out so many owners who want to provide these services, but you as a consumer, now you have a choice. You're either going to pay an outrageous price or you're going to pay a fair market price for what you need to have done.
0: Right, right. So uh, let's move on to the next segment here. I think we've covered that pretty well, uh, thanks to Tom getting it all launched there. So uh, let's see, this next subject is going to be mods versus safety and state legislation, introducing state legislation, which we kind of talked on, touched on a little bit, but he gets a little deeper with it. So let's see what he says.
2: You know, what I think is happening is as these vehicles become more sophisticated um, and modifications are happening and and consumers want to modify their vehicles all the time, I think they just want to ensure that you're not adjusting the, the basic tenet of the safety system so they operate properly. Oftentimes, when you're modifying a vehicle, you're taking um, you, you're taking off a bumper or a fender um, or a skirt, and you're adding something else on it. These new vehicles have sensors, and um, in the in these parts, and those parts have to be recalibrated. And and oftentimes, consumers don't realize that um, the new vehicles have these new components in the in the vehicles as part of the ADAS systems, and and they're very sensitive. And, and have to be calibrated at a, at a uh, licensed or qualified repair facility. And not all repair facilities do ADAS repairs. And so the challenge is how do you balance citizens that want to modify their vehicles um, versus oh, wow. ensuring that uh, the safety systems aren't um, disengaged or, or not modified or um, not calibrated properly because of the modification. That's the balance that I think um, is happening across the country. How do you how do you have that 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 gentle mix between the two? Um, as it relates to other states, you know, I think you know you need look at California. There's always legislation in California. Um, I say often that what starts in California then shifts to the rest of the country. It's probably the most heavily regulated state. Um, they have their own agency specifically devoted to automotive repair, um, modifications, exhaust systems. Um, and so there are multiple agencies that have jurisdiction over lots of, lots of different components on the vehicle. So California always comes to mind first. Um, then of course, New York usually follows everything that California does. Washington State, um, Minnesota, um, and a few other states out West. Um, but it, it usually starts in California and then moves to the rest of the country.
0: And then the phone rings.
1: <laughs> it's business.
0: It's okay. I know who it is. I'll call him back. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, good points there. I was laughing in the background because I was thinking to myself, all those Lat- Latino low are at fault <laughs> for modifying their cars and putting, you know, too, too loud of, you know, too, uh, too loud sound systems and beat boxes and lifts and, you know, jumping but- things or,
1: But they're beautiful vehicles. I
0: know, right? I mean, why not blame them, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. That's the reason why California has, you know, but it's true. And if you didn't know where to not move, now you know. (laughs) (laughs) So he named all the states there. Uh, What do you say to what he's saying there?
1: Well, I mean, it brings up a a really good point because you think about if you do any type of modification, you know, these days you have slow speed or slow impact airbags. So, I mean, you could, you know, seriously sit off your your airbag. Now, all of a sudden, now you're dealing with another expense that has to be done with OEM product and by authorized people to put in the replacement airbag that you just deployed by doing some work on your vehicle. And I've had a vehicle in the past where I've had a front end kit and, and the rear end had been worked on as well. And I remember how difficult it was to get stuff done. Um, but everything I did, it was after the warranty had expired on the vehicle. But if I was doing it before then, it, it would have avoided the warranty and I would have had nothing but issues and troubles with it. So, you know, I definitely agree with what he's saying is that, uh, you know, these are things that have to be looked at. This is something that has to be kind of I don't want to use the regulated word, but I think there has to be some structure that says that if a consumer buys something, if I buy a car. I'm buying the car. It's my car, right? (laughs) Right. There has to be some compromise between an automotive manufacturer and the consumer that says, we're going to cover this. And if this happens, you have an option. The option is to do this or come to the dealer. There are a lot of people I remember, you know, with my grandparents, you know, when they had a vehicle, if they had a problem with it, they took it to the dealer when it was even out of warranty because they grew up or their minds, you know, they were. They always said that the dealer can do it better than anybody, but, you know, mm-hmm. me being the kid working 16 years old in a grocery store, not making a ton of money. Hey, I'm going to take it to Tom's garage and Tom can fix it for half the price. Right. And, you know, I'm, that's what I'm going to want to do. But if you do it today, you, you, you void everything. And that's, that's, yeah. that's a shame.
0: Well, you know, I experienced that personally because I have a couple of Turo's that we do. It's easy, convenient for me. Uh, People just come here from the airport. We're about a mile away. And every time I get my cars fixed, I actually take it even though I own them outright. uh, You know, I still feel like uh, I need to have if something were to happen to this, you know, somebody guest on a booking or something like that, then at least i have the paperwork to say look i took it to this dealership and you know they fixed it for me you know
1: well um, yeah i yeah. think for businesses that that makes sense because you're going to deal with liability issues it could be a requirement of your insurance carrier too
0: right it could yeah well so, let's not talk about that in turo because that's like don't don't ask don't tell but yeah you know but uh but you know just in terms of me thinking things through you know like i need to kind of think about that. I had somebody cancel my tour because uh, their trip with me and they found a better deal, okay, I got that. But the only, the the bonus for them going with these other people instead of me was they were throwing in a surfboard. And I'm like, okay, if you get hurt on that surfboard, whose fault is that? And does that give them the right to sue you now uh, because you threw it in the deal? you know, uh, well, free or not, you
1: know? Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I didn't sleep at a whatever hotel, but I can tell you, uh, the one l- rule I learned growing up, uh, into my adulthood was that you sue everybody and <laughs> the United States is very litigious. And if it, something were to happen, it would be, well, I had an accident on that surfboard. Where'd you get the surfboard? I got it for free for doing a tour when I decided not to do it with Kim Scott. Yeah. And um, yeah, that person's, they're going to get sued for that. It's just, that's the way it yeah. goes.
0: Yeah. It's just, you know, I don't know what people will do to get a, tour, you know, to get a, a booking on Toro these days, but anyway, Yeah, but I,
1: I, I'm just trying to wonder what kind of profitability came out of that. Cause this airports are not cheap.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I just was like, well, okay, yeah. see you later, <laughs> you know? Okay. So let's continue on this next section is just him talking about, you know, what's at stake for job shops. Um, What are the, you know, we can talk about the challenges after we're talking, you know, what he's talking about here. So let's listen in on what the next thing he's talking about. There we go.
2: You know, in in a sense, we are. um, But I I like to put the focus. I try and take the focus away from the shop for a moment and the OEM and focus on the customer. Um, If we're doing our best for the customer, then the customer is going to come back. And part of that means is ensuring a safe and proper repair. One of the challenges that shops, smaller shops that you're talking about, the smaller independent shops are going to face, particularly with these newer, more modern and technological vehicles, is they're gonna have to invest in um, capital improvements with new parts, tools, and equipment, so they can do the upgrades and do the modifications in a safe and efficient manner you know, currently, when you talk about ADAS calibration and repair, most repairs across the country right now send send their send vehicles that they um, that c- customers brought into their shop. They'll do the general repair, but for the calibration, they send it to the OEM back to the dealership to do the repair. Um, which you know saves more. It's it, it increases the time of the repair and increases the cost. Um, these smaller shops, if they're going to, if they're wanting to get involved in these newer vehicles, they're going to have to have capital investment to, to buy the, the newer equipment to do the ADAS calibrations and repairs, um, as well as the training for the technicians so that they can be uh, certified to do this sort of uh, calibration. And so, you're absolutely right. What we're talking about is perhaps these smaller shops, you know, are at stake, but. One of the things that I'm always encouraged about is this industry always evolves, and we're at an inflection point where the industry is evolving from, you know lifting up the hood, um, you know, and putting oil and grease on your having oil and grease on your fingers to a more technological computer-based uh, repair system. Um so the aptitude for technicians is different. Um, how to repair the vehicles are different. And so you know we're just going through the natural evolution in the repair as the as the cars become more uh more technological it's something that's happened you know we, we started at the crankshaft you know then we you know we've we moved all the way down to these advanced safety systems and so it's a natural evolution um small shops i think are at stake um but If we keep our focus on the customer, what do we have to do to keep our customers coming back? What do we have to do to ensure new customers coming? Let's make sure that we are trained um, and have the latest uh, tools and equipment to repair. And and when we do the modifications to ensure that when we put that car back on the road, it is in tip-top condition and meets all the safety requirements so that the vehicle is safe, the owner-operator is safe, and the other motorists are safe. That's something we all are, are, are concerned about, is the safety of the motorists, because our, our collective reputations are at stake.
1: Very good points.
0: Really good points. Um, I think one of the thoughts I had, oh, I forgot what I, what were my, well, you go first, Jim, because I'm thinking about thoughts.
1: Yeah, I, I agree where he's saying we're, we're at that inflection point. If we wind back the clock over hundred plus years ago, when automotive, when automobiles were coming into production, you know, Henry Ford and everything like that, mass production, you had the major mode of transportation were horses. (laughs) And so that industry, the horse whip, buggies, all that industry that supported the horse went through the same stresses and strains, but technology leaped over the horse. And now people pretty much buy horses just to be able to do shows and just because for right. literally for, leisure. for a hobby, right? They're right. not, the, they're not the, work, the work vehicle like they were over 100 plus years ago. Yeah. The same thing's happening today. And when we really look at autonomous vehicles, we look at all of the lithium battery vehicles that are out there as well. We're starting to see, again, that transformation happen. But the point I like what he said is if everyone were just even the OEMs and manufacturers, doesn't matter, brands, whatever, focus on the customer. Stop worrying about how you're going to make more money, how you're going to protect your little piece of the pie. Because the pie can grow. We know that it's not a set size of a pie. When you Mm -hmm. do that, companies will rise up. um, Companies will disappear. There were horse, you know horse buggy companies and whip companies that disappeared. But a lot of them transitioned and embraced a new technology. And they're some of the innovators that got into the automotive industry.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I like the word that he used, which is evolve, um, because Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily need to be negative or dystopic. It could actually lead to something bigger and better where,
1: you know, it opens up creativity and innovation In, innovation innovation is really where we want to strive to because with innovation you can get efficiency you can also work on bringing costs down you know when i you know i know things are expensive these days and you know when you buy a vehicle you know sometimes you're talking 60 70 80000 dollars now i remember you you probably remember a time too when you know you weren't literally like buying a house to buy a vehicle um right. but with the, you know, progress is happening. The nice thing about having that flexibility is it gives people options. So if they if they want to go pay a premium, they can pay a premium, but at least they have options in case, you know, they're in a certain situation or financial condition. And it doesn't also, too, limit that certain class. In other words, when I'm talking about, I'm talking about earning classes. You know, you have you have people who make, you know, millions of dollars. You have people that make hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have people that make thousands of dollars. And now all of a sudden they have options, but if you make the vehicle prices go through the roof, you're going to have people that are literally forced to only be able to do public transportation and that's that limits and that limits yep. them too, because now their job potential can get narrowed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: their ability to go out and do things, to go out and spend money, because that's what we want to do. We want to have people going out there and, and having the dinner on the weekends or going to Disney World or doing those things. If they don't have that vehicle, they don't have that ability to move around. And yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, on one hand it's expansive, but at the other hand, it's there's some other parts to it that are not uh expansive at all. Uh you know, take for instance EV. I mean, if you can only, you know, they we've got a great number of Teslas here on the island. Well, our island is only 50 square feet, square, square miles across, right? So, like, you could pretty much go anywhere on this island in one, you know, charge, but, uh, you know, when you're on the mainland and you've got highways and highways and highways to go on, you know, how far can you get, right? You're going to run out of battery at some point or have to charge or stop, or you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. it, it's still limiting. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, if it's limiting in time or. or exactly.
1: Like, yeah.
2: And, and if you
1: think about it with, you know, like with Tesla, you, you've got to go to the Tesla charging stations. And, you know, there are th- at least three or four other manufacturers that do make charging stations for other brands. Um, the challenge that happened here, I'm in Pittsburgh. So up in the northern climate, the situation happened back in January. When we had the real frigid weather coming through the Arctic uh, Clipper come through. There were, uh, this didn't really impact the Tesla charging stations, although people have to go online, you have to book time with it. What happened was the other third party, we call them third party all the time. I used call them because they're, they're different name brands. Mm-hmm. Those charging stations, a lot of them would not charge the other EV battery brands that are out there, you know, vehicles, because um, they couldn't handle the subarctic weather.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So now again, that's a limitation of technology, but when occurrences like that happen, that's when innovation can happen because now these companies will say, hey, we had a problem in 2023, in January. We need to fix this so we don't have 40% of our machines right. in the northern climate go, go down because if you're down to 20% charge, you might not have enough to get to the next charging station. And guess what? If this one doesn't work, am I going to risk driving, wasting my 20% to get to the next one and find out it doesn't work either?
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah, that sounds scary. Yeah, um, I think the other thought I had originally what I couldn't think of was, you know, SEMA talks about like defining what a modifier is or who a modifier is, and I think that that's, you know, what is considered a modifier. You know, like they're that's what they're trying to kind of delineate in, in a different way, and I I'll make sure to put that. Uh, if I find that article, um, but I know he talks about it in the episode 51, so I'll make sure to put that in the link in the description. But, um, yeah, that, I think that that's kind of where one of the things they're talking about is, well, who's a modifier and what specifically does this modifier do, right? Or what are the different levels to it, right?
1: It has to be defined out Mm because it's, it's too nebulous and it could be anything. And a lot of it comes on the onus of the OEM to accept it or not. And that's not where you want to be.
0: Right. So this next part is going to be talking about the right to repair and the circular economy. Um, You know, uh, we can talk about this is what kind of got me on this whole circular economy thing with the, all the mergers and acquisitions, you know, some of these multinational coatings companies have done just in our industry, right? You know, what are they up to, and why are they doing these things? So let's let's go to the next part here um, with Tom Tucker, Autocare.org. Well,
2: I look I look at it just a little bit different. The, the answer is yes and no. Um, I mean, clearly the industry is going through quite a few mergers and consolidations. Um, Big players are uh, are swallowing up some of the smaller players. Some of the smaller players are actually uh, merging to get bigger. And so that's actually a natural evolution of this industry from its very inception. Um, So I'm not too concerned about that. What I am concerned about is when you have the mergers and consolidations or or limited um, availability for other uh, shops to do the repairs or modifications. It limits choice. It, it drives up cost. Um, it, the consumer is away from their vehicle longer. Uh, and so those are some of the other challenges. You know, another challenge is, um, and I think I talked about this uh, a few moments ago, as as we move forward, there's an opportunity that I think the industry has to embrace and that's new technicians. You know, the, the these new vehicles provides an opportunity to train a ne- the next generation of technicians who can do repairs, who can do calibrations, who can do body work um, and modifications and do them in a safe and efficient manner because they're learning on these newer vehicles. And so there's an opportunity for the whole industry. We just have to embrace the opportunity rather than uh, look at every change as negative. Of course, some change is not good but let's look at what we can change um, and make the best of it and grow the industry. Because this is an industry that's going to be around. As long as people have cars, people are going to want to modify those cars to fit their personality or their personal liking. And so the industry is not going anywhere. We just have to evolve with the changes of the times.
0: All true. In my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that.
0: Yeah. You um, you know, I got onto the circular economy thing and what it means. And I, I, I think I brought this up on your show. I'm not sure if it was covered, uh, but I have talked about it on my show in the past. And that is if you're not trying to get, grow your shop um, or, have an exit strategy or just as a business you should have a business owner you should have an exit strategy you know like get yourself to a place to where you're either going to be able to uh, buy other companies and grow through grow through buyouts and and um, that kind of growth or uh, present yourself as an ideal candidate to be bought out. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not thinking of one of those two scenarios right now, I, I I think you you will be one of those job shops that could just kind of uh, be put out of business. Um,
1: yeah, it's a grow or die mentality.
0: It it, it is, um, and that's just it's not because uh, it, it's not because of product or not being able to get material and supplies for your business. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's an other outside force that's happening a macro force that's happening that could change your world uh, sooner than you think. Um, And I, I always try to think globally and then kind of try to think, you know, uh, locally.
1: Yeah. I mean, even in the, in the code, in the liquid coating side, You know, we have contractors, you know, a lot of a lot of Greek families, a lot of families came immigrated to the United States and they became industrial painters. And, you know, they stayed in the family. There's still some that existed are still family business, maybe fourth or fifth generation now. But we had the corporatization and the coatings, a particular coating side on the contractors really started about 10, 15 years ago, where you started seeing companies, corporations buying up the Ma and Paul contractors and making them into these, uh, in some cases global, but in, in most cases, national coding contractors that would do this work. But, you know, back to the point where he talked about, you know, when you really are looking at growing the technicians, every industry is having challenges with finding the labor. And I think if you're able to a showcase that these technicians are highly specialized, they're highly skilled, they're certified. Now they're going to get paid a- appropriately based on the amount of work and the quality of work they're going to do. That's a great job career for someone coming out of high school because you don't have to have a two year or four year or a master's, right. a doctorate degree to be able to do these jobs. Same thing, what you do in a shop. You could really bring somebody up out of high school and ultimately they could turn around and buy Maui powder works. Right. Yeah, and that that's that circular economy you want to have. You want to have that organic growth. And then, you know, for you, Kim, you know, maybe, you know, you and and, and your family, you have ideas to say, hey, we're going to expand. We're, we're going to go to every island and then we're going to California and we're moving east. Um, but again, you might say, Hey, I'm gonna build up Maui Powder Works and I'm gonna make myself big and fat and look juicy for someone to want to come in and write the check. <laughs> that's fine.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you see that, I mean that we're actually already, I mean, we that's pretty much when you see businesses getting bought out. Like a good example of that would be our local drugstore, you know. Um, it was a regionally owned. Family-owned drugstore, Longs Drugs. Uh, I think they even expanded into like the West Coast. Just a, a little bit of a little bit of stores in California and. Stuff. I've heard of them before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ultimately, they got bought out by CVS. Now, uh, the downside to that was my yeah. local flavored um, experience is now. Not it, it's just boring, and there's no it's just like every other CVS on the in the states with can't yeah. find anything, uh, <laughs> you know, and you have to think about my mind map too, right? I've been shopping at longs my whole life, yeah, I knew where exactly what I needed on every aisle, and then to have it upended like that is just really shocking. So, there's, there's some fallout to like if evolution right you know there's fallout to evolution which is what he's talking you know he brought that word up um you know i can't get the cutesy little like if i wanted to gift somebody or go to a birthday party or something i could totally pick something up from there whether it was a bottle of booze or some cute little purse or something from the makeup counter or whatever i could just get everything there and now i can't do that like it's just like a lot of my um choices were eliminated. So again, we have experiences every day uh happening in our in our society that is, you know, kind of showing you that it's happening in other kinds of uh um, other kinds of industries. And we're gonna get to that towards the end of here. So let's move on to this next section. And I think that's then he's gonna tell you what to do about it. And then we can go into these other other industries that you know about that's happening too. So let's, let's see what he has to say next. So this next title is, uh, what are you going to do about it? How, how to get involved or what, what can you do um, to combat this or fight this or whatever?
2: Um, What consumers can be talking about every day on that affects your business or affects your personal property or a, a law or a regulation that's or a change that will have a negative impact to your business you know the most important thing you can do is reach out to your representative your member of Congress member of the Senate the local um, the state delegation your local officials and explain to them you know what it is your concern is how it affects you how it affects your business um, I always tell people that no one, can tell your story better than you. So you are the best advocate for your your business, your your issue, your industry, um, and your interests. Furthermore, you know, oftentimes we're so busy, you know, taking care of our customers that we forget that we have another obligation, that is to ensure that elected officials understand our business. They understand the economic impact that we make, the number of jobs that we create, number of parts that are being sold and modifications, things that really go unnoticed because, you know, we're so busy doing the job. We have to do a better job of telling our stories. So that includes inviting your elected officials into your facilities, um, getting involved in the political process. Go to a fundraiser, go to a community event, you know, tell your story, Write write a letter, you know, or, or an email. But you've got to tell the story, get involved because the future of the industry is at stake. Yeah, so true.
0: It is. Um, I am going to a community event tonight um, and stuff. So it'll be interesting. You know, obviously part of the podcast, you know, is is our way of getting this subject matter out uh, so that just having an awareness. Um, it's not necessarily being talked about in mainstream media. Um I haven't seen anything, but I don't follow a lot of mainstream media either. But I do. I did stumble on the few doc, you know, the few articles, uh, you know, um, about it and learned more about it at SEMA. So. Yeah. So what's going on in other industries, Jim? I mean.
1: So you have, you have several different industries that are kind of fighting on the same front. Uh, The first one that comes to mind is a a gentleman called Louis Rossman. He used to be in Manhattan. He did um, Apple repair. He would do iPhones. He would do MacBooks and things like that. Um, He's now um, immigrated to the state of Texas because of all the fun things that uh, New York City and New York State likes to do to business owners. But he was a strong advocate because what would happen is uh, anytime you would need to have phone done or work done on a phone or a laptop if you went to apple if they detected any type of moisture they would call it liquid damage It would say sorry we're not going to repair it you have to buy a brand new phone you have to buy a brand new macbook and a lot of times what would happen is where lewis would pick up business it would be people bringing in what they would call liquid damage and he would be able to quickly repair it and get it back up and running again the problem with it is when they go back now, all of a sudden, it's not covered any type of warranty. And, um, you know, Apple at that point in time will never do any type of work on it at all. So he started getting involved where he was getting trouble buying product to put into mm. MacBooks, and iPhones. So he was buying used laptops, Macs and oh. phones to be able to take parts out of it to repair these phones, these um, MacBooks. So he started a crusade in New York State where he went up against the lobbyists to do right to repair. Ultimately, he did not win, but he got pulled in. There is a national organization for right to repair. They're a nonprofit yes. organization. And they fight for again, like this, this covers so many different industries. It's not just specific to cars or to it, it's it just it's so big. Yeah. And so what happens is you're talking about a crusade. You have to go state to state to state. Because every state has right to repair laws on the books. And you have a K Street lobby firm in D.C. that fights tooth and nail and they're paid by Apple. They're paid by all these Mm -hmm. manufacturers to fight against and stop it. And typically what they'll do is they do a lot of head trash. They'll go in and say, well, if you have other people do the repair, you don't know if you're getting good repair. They could be putting uh, cheap parts in. They could be putting in used parts. You don't know. And so what typically happens is you have people that are convinced that this is not right, and I should pay more money to have the manufacturer, the OEM, do the repair or fix it versus my choice. If I want to go to the technology store or if I want to go to the auto dealer or if I want to go to whoever – Have them do it, and then the biggest impact for one of the industries is like agriculture. So you have these giant capital equipments that are literally harvesters and things like that. They might have a little component in it that the farmer knows all I got to do is pull this out, put this in, and I'm good to go. But now they can't do it. That machine goes down. They have to wait for a tech to sometimes get on a plane, fly in, do the repair, reset everything. It's back into production. Guess what? They lost production, and they're paying. For that person's time, flight, meals, hotel, everything, just to come in and do one little thing. And so a lot of farmers have been fighting this. But like I say, the lobby firms are strong. It's going to take the consumers in mass to rise up and say, we want choice. We want the opportunity for right to repair. If I want to go to this person versus that person, as long as this person's doing it the right way, that should be okay." I own the iPhone. You don't. I own my car. You don't. I bought it. But the way the things are the way the laws are set right now when it comes to right to repair, in a way, you really don't own that vehicle. You really don't own that laptop. You really don't own that iPhone. It's it you have to do what they tell you. And that's not that's not capitalism. That's not American. Uh, totally.
0: <laughs> it's not American at all. Um, I think a lot of Americans would um have a hard time you know and and that's why this message needs to get out so badly um i thank you for coming on today i think this is a great way to kind of end the end it because i want i want our listeners to kind of think deeply about what they just heard uh you know from you and tom uh i've been sitting on you know like i said i've been sitting on this guys interview for months now going, okay, I got to do this, you know, and this was just the perfect opportunity to sit down with you to meet you again online and uh, talk about such a deep subject that is so vitally important to industry and the future of industry and your, the future of your business, right? What's in, what's at stake for you and why are you in it in the first place? Because if you got into it to be an independent uh business owner to, to make your own choices every day, uh, then this is a a force that could make or break your business in the future.
1: Yeah. So true. And it it needs everyone, everyone, everyone watching this. If you just, you know, lend some support, lend your voice, maybe it's just signing that digital, you know, register saying that you support this. it, It makes a big difference.
0: Yeah. In that SEMA, um, uh, article, Uh, that I will link in the description. If you scroll down to the bottom, it actually says email your representative and it'll give you like, it'll take you to this page that allows you to do that. A lot of these actually just even have like, um, they'll even write it out. So all you have to do is copy and paste the email, uh, you know, into the email, just so that the representative hears one more person saying the same thing, right? You know, so a lot of times they'll write stuff. You don't have to write your own, but I agree with Tom. Tell, tell your story. Uh, if you've got a stake in this, tell your story, right?
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, have a great day, everybody. Aloha, and we'll see you next time.